name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. The kingdom of God, it's a big theme for Jesus, and it's what we're going to be talking about uh, over the next few weeks. The first four books of the New Testament are really an expression of the kingdom of God. The statement, the kingdom of God, is found on the lips of Jesus in 61 separate sayings. Um, And it seems to be, as you read your Bible and look for it, you'll find that the kingdom of God was a primary message that Jesus wanted to deliver, the kingdom of God. But, now listen carefully, you're going to be hard-pressed to hear Christian preachers today talk about the kingdom of God, including yours truly. We don't talk about the kingdom of God, but if you read your New Testament and look for it, you'll find that that's what Jesus spoke about uh, the most. And since, since Jesus is the center of our faith and uh, he's the one we follow, it seems this is a question we need to, uh, to address uh, Inarguably, in one of the most famous sermons that Jesus ever delivered, he, uh, part of it, he ended up one of his sayings in the Sermon on the Mount by saying this. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else shall be added to you. So Jesus' words are pretty clear that one of the number one focuses for us, or maybe the, maybe I could even say it this, this strongly, the number one focus for us as his followers ought to be the kingdom of God. Now, the gospel is a common word in, uh, in our Christian vocabulary. We use it as an adjective today, pretty much. It's a, it's a noun representing all fir- first four books of the New Testament. We call them the gospels. But apart from that, we use gospel almost as an adjective to describe our churches. We have gospel churches and gospel messages and gospel music and gospel mission and a gospel vision. And, and we go on and on and on with a gospel this and a gospel that. The, the word gospel literally means simply good news. And one of the things that we'll learn, not so much today, but we will learn it in the future, that, that the word gospel in, in the Old Testament in particular, it's often tied with announcements and truths about the kings of Israel. So when Jesus came preaching the good news, noticed what he said, and he said it over and over again in, in the New Testament, in the first four books of the Bible, of the New Testament, he says that he came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news for Jesus was the kingdom of God. So Mark 1:14 says, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, or preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Furthermore, Jesus would say, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Other scriptures, Matthew 9, 35, Jesus went about all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom or preaching the good news of the kingdom. At one point in his ministry, people were urging him to stay and not leave. But he said, hey, I've got to go. And this is how he responded to them, uh, to their urging for him to stay. He said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose, I have been sent. So let that sink in for just a moment. Jesus says, I can't hang here, guys, because this is why I've come. I've come to preach the kingdom of God, and I need to preach it in other places, not just here. So that was a a central 
part of what Jesus came to do to preach the gospel. So a question that I think we need to ask ourselves then, you know, what did Jesus mean when he said, I have to preach the kingdom of God. I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Maybe, maybe a, a, an even more poignant question would be, what is the kingdom of God that Jesus came to preach this good news? Now, one of the reasons that this task is kind of hard, that is to define what is the kingdom of God, is because nowhere does Jesus do that. Nowhere do the disciples. We can't, I can't say, turn to this passage and I'm going to show you what Jesus, how Jesus defines the kingdom of God. He never really does. He simply says, I've come to preach the kingdom of God. So he kind of leaves it to us to figure out what did he mean by that. What did he mean when he said the kingdom of God has drawn near? Over the centuries, Christians have tried to define the kingdom of God. So we could go out there and, and I could read you uh, historical thoughts on what the kingdom of God is, and they vary quite a bit. So instead of doing that, what I'd like to do is just go back to the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, I got this, I can't, remain, I can't remember the brother's name, but, but he, was, he was talking about how kingdoms have five distinctives. You find them in the Old Testament, you find it in the New Testament, five necessary ingredients to what makes up a kingdom. And so, first of all, let me share with you what those five are. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the kingdom of God as it relates to these five points or these five ingredients of kingdom. And then I'm going to give you three applications for us to walk away with this morning as, as it relates to the kingdom of God. So everybody got it? That's what we're going to do. Here's the five ingredients that, that this brother identified that make up a kingdom. First, every kingdom must have a king. Now, some of you are going to laugh. This is really simple, okay? But it gets harder. I mean, it'll get deeper, I promise. But every kingdom must have a king. The word kingdom is a composite word of king and dumb. Uh, dom, not dumb, dom, uh, which has to do with... Uh, the, uh, lead, uh, an area. So he is the leader, the master, or the, if you would, the head of, of a dominion, head of a, of a place or a people. Number two, every kingdom must have a king that rules, not just, not just as a kingdom have. Um, it is on, guys. So maybe the battery's dead. I'll just stay here. I won't, I won't move. So uh, every kingdom must have a king. Number two, every king must, <clears throat> must rule. I'm sorry, everybody's trying to tell me what to do with the mic. It's here. It's here. Okay. It's not working. So we'll just, I'll stay right here. Number two, every kingdom must have a king who rules. There are a lot of kings that have been banished. And there are kings over this kingdom, but they don't rule. They don't even live in the kingdom because they've been run out. So every kingdom must not only have a king, but he must have a, it must have a king that rules. Number three, every kingdom must have subjects. Now, at this point, reminded me of the quip that I've heard, you know, I guess my entire ministry life, and that is that if you think you're a leader and nobody's following, you're merely out for a walk. And if you think you're a king and you don't have any subjects, you're merely the Burger King, all right? So uh, a kingdom must have people that a king rules over, actual subjects. Number four, every kingdom must have a law. Every kingdom must have a king who has expectations over his subjects. And so every kingdom has a law that's put forth by the kings. Now, over the ages, we've had uh, evil kings whose, whose will is really selfish and wants to enslave, enslave his subjects. But on the other hand, there have been good kings throughout the ages. And, and the good kings under their leadership, the people flourish. 
You know, I was thinking about history, and immediately who came to mind was King Arthur, who probably wasn't a king at all. It was probably just a legend or a myth. But, but King Arthur has gone down in history as a benevolent king who, under his rule, the people, the people flourished. And then finally, the fifth point is that every kingdom must have territory. Every kingdom not only has to have subjects, but it has to have territory over which the king rules and borders to the territory. What made ISIS um, so unique in its uh, short reign of terror is that they claimed to have territory. They had the state, the state of Islam under the caliphate. Or caliphate, yeah, caliphate, and uh, caliphate, and uh, and he was the king. Now, when they lost all their territory, he also lost his ability to uh, inspire people because a kingdom had to have territory, and the Islamic State said we have territory. So there you have it: five ingredients that go up to making a kingdom, Old Testament and New: a king, a king with power, a king with people, a king with a will, and a king with land. So when Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God during that time, it's obvious that he must have had these, these things in mind. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk back through those five, and I'd like to look at them from, from Jesus' perspective as, as the kingdom of God having come in, in their midst. So let's walk back through them. In the kingdom of God, God is obvious, obviously the king of his kingdom. That stands uh, logically, does it not, that if we have the kingdom of God, God is the king. And in fact, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the psalmist said this pretty uh, repeatedly. The Lord is king forever and ever, and the nations perish from his land. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. I appreciate the songs that Michael chose this morning because so many of them pointed us to the fact that Jesus is our king. In the New Testament, Jesus is identified as the king of the kingdom of God. When we get to the book of Revelation in chapter 11, we read, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. And this morning when I was practicing, I, I broke into the hallelujah course, but I'm not going to do that for you now. Maybe I will. And he shall reign forever and ever. Our king's going to reign forever, right? And Jesus is our king, right? And, and so in, in the kingdom of God, Jesus comes to earth identified as the king over the kingdom of God. And the reason for that is because Jesus is God. That's why he came preaching that the kingdom of God had drawn near because the king was here, because God was here, and he came in the person of Jesus. You remember when Jesus is at the end of his earthly life, he's on trial before Pilate. Pilate said, are you a king? And you remember Jesus says, it is as you say. I am a king. Number two, God as king has the power to rule. One of the things that the Bible asserts, not just that God is king over everything, but that God has the power to rule as king. He's not only king, he is the sovereign. He is the one true and only sovereign king. So Jeremiah 32, 17 says, O oh, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and outstretched arms, nothing is too hard for you. In the book of Revelation, the 24 elders bow down before, before God and worship him. And they say, we give thanks to you, Lord Almighty, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. But my favorite is Psalm 
115, verses 1 through 3. And the psalmist says this, he says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, because you, because your faithful love, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he desires to do, because he is the sovereign king. He is the king who, by, by his nature, by his omnipotent power, has the power to rule. And so Jesus, again, towards the end of his life, actually, excuse me, after he's already been resurrected, toward his end of his time here on earth, before he returns to the Father in heaven, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, but of Jesus the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus, as the Son of God and as God, is King and He has the power to rule. Number three, the people of God's kingdom are those who put their faith in Him and who follow Him. Jesus is the King. God is the King. Jesus is the King with power to rule because He, as the Son of God, has come with all His omnipotent power. And number three, Jesus invites, in fact, when Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God had drawn near, what he was saying was that everybody who wants to is welcome to be a part of my kingdom. Everybody who wants to be a part can come. And so in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus said things like this. Listen, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This great sovereign king, the king of all kings, came to earth and he came what did it say in Hebrews? He came to righteously rule. And he came here to say to all of us, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you are welcome. And if you come to my kingdom, you will find rest. Jesus told a lot of stories like this, inviting people into his kingdom. In Luke 14, again, just, just listen. When one of those who were reclining at the table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, and this is in a context where Jesus is eating with some men, blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus replies to him, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said, I bought a field and I must go and see to it. Uh, I ask uh, that you excuse me. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to train them. I ask that you excuse me. Another said, I got married, therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told the servant, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind, the lame. Master, the servant said, we've done what you've ordered and there's still room. And then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. 
Now, he's really directing that at the Jews, right? Because Jesus came to invite them to be a part of his kingdom, and they refused. But the point that I wanted you to see was that he then says, man, go out everywhere. Invite everybody to come into my banquet. Invite everyone to be a part of my kingdom, because I want my kingdom to be filled. Everyone is invited, but not all will come. As a matter of fact, I think Jesus made it pretty clear that few will come. In the kingdom of God, Jesus is king, or God is king. He rules with power. His subjects are those who by faith who will come to him. And number four, in his kingdom, his will is revealed and his will is done. And here's where we need to be really, really clear. God has revealed his will to his subjects. God has told us what his desires are. And when he taught his disciples to pray, this is what he said to them. He said, pray like this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's desire is that his will be done in his kingdom here on earth. You know the wonderful thing? Listen, the wonderful thing about the will of God is that God is not attempting. And if you, if you can embrace this, it'll change your life. God's will is not a heavy thumb to suppress you. God's will is not to damage you or to put you down or to keep you marginalized or to somehow render your life less than joyful. That is not the will of God. The will of God is to bring you joy. The will of God is so that you and I will flourish and so that his kingdom will flourish. And so in his will, we find things like this, that we are to love one another and prefer others as more important than ourselves. His will is that joy prevails and that peace reigns and that people are patient. Can you imagine a kingdom where people are like that? Where people are kind and people are good and people are gentle and people are understanding and people are self-controlled and people are forgiving of others. Can you imagine a kingdom where that is true? Well, that's, that's the rule of our king. That's the law of our king. That's the desire and the will and the expectations of our king, that we care for people, that we care for others, that we care for the poor, that we stand against injustice. That is the will of our king. And, uh, you know, and when, well, let me, let me not get ahead of myself, but that's the will of the king. And the last ingredient of the kingdom, remember, was territory. And here's what I'd say about the kingdom of God. One day, the territory of the kingdom of God will be the world. One day, God is going to rule over all the earth. Uh, the kingdom of God is equated in the scripture throughout all the universe, right? He's the king over all the universe. Um, and to, all too often, people equated the kingdom of God just with the kingdom of Israel. And though God always desired for the kingdom of Israel to be one and the same with his kingdom, his kingdom was always bigger than just the kingdom of Israel. Okay, his kingdom was to be the kingdom of the world. It's wrong for us to make them one and one comparisons. They are not one and the same. And the territory of God's kingdom, though it's been all the universe, in our context as living creatures, the kingdom of God will be this world in which we live. Psalm 47 says, sing praise to God, sing praise, sing praise to our king, sing praise, sing a song of wisdom, for God is the king of the whole earth. God reigns over the nations, God is seated on his holy throne. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. 
In 1 Chronicles 29, Solomon writes, I'm assuming it might be Solomon, your, your, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power uh, and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. But it seems incongruous, doesn't it? To say that Jesus is the king over all the earth when where is his territory now? Where is his territory now? Where, where, where can we say Jesus is reigning and ruling over territory today in the world? And there is, there is none. We cannot say that. In John chapter 18, again, we're at the end of Jesus' earthly life, and he's on trial before Pilate. You remember this exchange, but let me, let me give it to you again. Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own, or have others told you this about me? And Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? And then Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king, then Pilate asked. You, you uh, say that I am, Jesus replied, and I was born for this. I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I love that last line. Everyone whose heart is towards God, everyone who's not suppressing the truth of God, they hear the voice of Jesus and they respond to it. But here's what I want you to notice about Jesus' exchange with Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this earth, but he means it's not of this earth right now. Uh, the kingdom of God now is over the hearts of the men and women who submit to him by faith. The kingdom of God is, is, is over us. We are his subjects. We who by faith turn to him. We, we belong to the kingdom of God. And at this point, Jesus doesn't have territory. But I'm here to tell you, he will indeed have the territory of all the earth. Daniel saw out a vision where Jesus was given the kingdom by God. Listen, this is in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Jesus has, is, in my estimation, is ascending from earth back to heaven. And we read in verse 13, Suddenly one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. So I think here's a picture, if you would, if, if not a literal picture, at least a symbolic picture of the return of Christ back into the presence of God. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion, an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So Jesus has ushered into the presence of the Father, and he has given the kingdom. And the, king, the kingdom that he's given is the kingdom of, of God's people, the kingdom of us who follow him by faith. You know, in, uh, in the first part of Daniel, and uh, there's a vision that Daniel has. You remember this. And, and there's uh, the statue with all the, uh, all the nations represented. And there's this, this ball that starts up on the top of the mountain. And it comes rolling down and it crushes the, uh, the statue or crushes all the nations of the earth, if you would, and then spreads throughout the earth. I think God's talking about this, the kingdom of Jesus that God gave him that is over all our hearts. But Jimmy, you're not answering the question of territory. What about territory? 
Well, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion, uh, the dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. And he'll reign over the king, throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it in righteousness and justice forever. What about the land? Revelation chapter 22. Listen to what God says at the very end. And then he showed me the river of the, wor- of the water of life, crystal, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. This is after God's heaven has already been joined with our earth. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the lamp, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they, that is God and his son, will reign forever and ever. So the kingdom of God doesn't have physical territory today, but the promise of God is that one day the whole world will be his kingdom. The whole world's going to be his kingdom. Jesus is going to rule over the entire planet. And, you know, I know people would scoff at us, but it's, but it's our faith, everyone. It's what Jesus said. It's what, his, it's what his people said. It's what his prophets have said. It's what God himself has said, that he's going to bring his heaven here, and then he's going to rule over all the earth. And there will not be one piece of property on our planet that Jesus doesn't rule over. So let me give you three conclusions that I've drawn, and, and hopefully these will be, you know, applicational conclusions for us, all right? Or maybe just understanding conclusions. Some of them, some of them are both. Here's the first one. Here's the first conclusion. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. That's what I entitled this, this series. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. And what I mean by that is the kingdom of God has come. Jesus came. He came bringing the kingdom. He came offering the kingdom. And you can be a part of the kingdom of God today. You can be under the king. You can be his subject, okay? You can belong to him. You can submit yourself to his rule. You can allow him to change your life. But the kingdom of God has not been fully realized at this point. Jesus repeatedly said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. More explicitly, he said in Luke eleven twenty, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then even more explicitly in Luke 17, 21, he says, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is here. Christ has come. We can belong to his kingdom. But there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is not yet. There's a sense in which God has, the consummation of God's kingdom has not come. And the Bible says the consummation of the kingdom of God will be when Jesus returns. This is what stumped the Jews. This is what cannot stump us. The kingdom of God has come, but it is coming in its fulfillment, in its its completion at the return of Christ. At the return of Christ, we shall be resurrected from the dead. Our face shall be turned to sight. And the Bible says that all the, all the enemies of God will be destroyed. And the kingdom of God will be complete and full. The kingdom of God is both now over the hearts of God's people and it's coming yet in its 
future fulfillment. And this is not a contradiction. This is the nature of God's kingdom. He comes to rule in our hearts now. He sits in heaven ruling over his people now and ruling over the earth as he is God. But he's going to come and he's going to sit on our world and he's going to manifest the fulfillment of his kingdom on that day. So everybody listen carefully. The kingdom of God has come. It's not coming future. It's already here. He's here. And in fact, well, let me go on to the next thing. Here's the next point. The good news that we should preach is that the kingdom of God has come and you can be a part of it. The good news that we should be preaching, everyone, is that the kingdom of God has come and that you can be a part of it. Now, there's two parts to that statement. First, that the kingdom of God has come. And yes, I just got through telling you that it's come and it's coming. So there is a culmination and a fulfillment and a completion. Yes, but it has come. The kingdom of God has come. The king has come and he has made a way for us to belong to him and be subject in his kingdom. And so therefore, we need to be preaching that the kingdom of God has come now. We are, listen, we, the people of God, we are the kingdom of God now. Jews and Gentiles together, we, the church, the called out ones, are the kingdom of God. We've been called out of all the earthly nations of the world. We've been called out of Russia and the U.S. and Uruguay and Costa Rica and Ukraine and Iran. And wherever you, wherever you find people, God has called people to himself. And they've come. And we are the kingdom of God. We've been called out of the nations of the world to become the kingdom of our God. And we come into the kingdom. And as we come into the kingdom, God changes us. And he gives us, remember, he's our king. He rules over us. And he has an ethic for us. He has a will for us to obey. He has a desire for us. And that desire is that we live in the beauty of holiness and that relationships flourish. Revelation 21.4 says, death will be no more. Crying, crying, grief, pain will be no more because the previous things uh, will have passed away. That's at the culmination of all things. At the culmination of all things, I, I believe we're going to have culture like we have today with art and painting and sculptures and work and purpose and relationships and good times and campfires and music, sitting around at the, at the beachy homes singing music. We're, it's going to be all those good things in the kingdom of God with Jesus as our king. Okay, that's what it's going to be, but it's, it's coming. It is, but it's not yet. In the meantime, we've been called to come out from the nations of the world and to be the kingdom of God, to be different. Can I tell you, listen, I'm, I really want you to hear God's heart here. Not my heart, God's heart. God wants us so different as his kingdom that the world around us will say, man, I want to know their God. I want, to, I want to be a part of their kingdom because in their kingdom, they love one another. In their kingdom, man, they care for each other. In their kingdom, they stand by one another. In their kingdom, they forgive one another because we're different, because Jesus is our king and he's put his spirit in us and we can now live by his ethic and by his will for our lives. The kingdom of God has come. It's already come and we're a part of it. And right now, God desires, God desires to make us Stand out from the other kingdoms of the world. Now the second part of this, uh, of what I just said here as far as application, the good news is that we preach the kingdom of God has come and you can be a part of it. The second part is that whosoever will can be a part of God's kingdom. 
If you want to be a part of God's kingdom, you can be a part of God's kingdom. That's the good news. And Jesus went out inviting people. Here's the good news. I have come. The kingdom is here. You can be a part of this. And now he's telling you and me to go. And in Romans chapter chapter 10, Paul would write, the message is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is inviting everybody to be a part of his kingdom. And what we're to do is we're supposed to invite people to be a part of his kingdom too. And you know what we say? We say, come be a part of the kingdom of God, and this is what it looks like. Listen, our message, guys, hear me out. Please don't misunderstand. Our message is not, hey, pray this prayer and believe that Jesus exists so that you can miss hell. That is not our message. Our message is that the kingdom of God has come and the king has loved us and he's inviting us to be a part of him forever. And we're, we're, the message that we're to preach is that you can be a part of the kingdom of God as well. Read your New Testament. The leaders and the, re, the writers of the New Testament and the apostles of the New Testament, they didn't go out and say, hey, come to Jesus and escape hell. Come to Jesus and escape hell. They never said that. They said, come to Jesus because he's the king that loves you and you can be a part of the kingdom of God now. That's the message that we need to be preaching. We need to be telling everyone and we need to be showing them. We need to be showing them by who we are as God's people. Come, this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. I'm telling you, doesn't that put a huge onus on us? Isn't that a huge weight on us? That when we walk in in unforgiveness and we walk in greed and we walk in uh, selfishness and lack of self-control and bitterness. And when we walk in all of that, which by the way, that's the world, that's what the world thinks of us all too often. That's what they think of us. But really what they're supposed to see is the realized future kingdom of God now in our hearts and in our lives. Randy Alcorn says of of the heaven to come, and I'm just going to quote him. And here's here's Randy Alcorn, quote, Ephesians 1.10 says that God's plan is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Just as, the God, just as God and man will be forever united in Jesus, so heaven and earth will be forever united in the new physical universe where we'll live as resurrected people. God will live with us on the new earth. They, that will bring all things in heaven and earth together. And I, he, I heard in a loud, he quotes here, and I heard in a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21.3. We'll live, this is Randy again, we'll live and rule and serve with our Lord Jesus, the source of all joy and happiness. To be in resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth and resurrected friendships, enjoying a resurrected culture with the resurrected Jesus, now that will be the ultimate party. Everybody will be who God made them to be, and none of us will suffer or die again. Mankind was designed to live on earth to God's glory. That's exactly what Christ, incarnation, death, and resurrection secured and renewed humanity upon this renewed earth. I didn't read that right. Let me read it again. That's exactly what Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection secured, a renewed humanity upon a renewed earth. 
And the final point that I have for you is Jesus is our king. Let's follow him. Jesus is Lord. Let's let's serve him. Jesus is our lead. Let's line up behind him. Those, Those of us who enter the kingdom of God, we have said no to all the rival nations of the world. We have said, I'm coming out of Iran to be a part of the kingdom of God. I'm coming out of the United States to be part of the kingdom of God. I'm coming out of Uruguay to be part of the kingdom of God. I I am part of a new nation. The Bible calls us a new nation. It calls us a kingdom. It calls us a kingdom of priests to our God and to other people. There can only be one Caesar on the throne of our hearts. And that Caesar is King Jesus. He's the only one that can sit and rule over our lives. He's the only one who should. Jesus would ask his subjects, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Why do you claim Jesus is king and not do what he says? That's literally what Jesus is saying. And by the way, the greatest rival, the greatest rival to King Jesus is not your political opponent, everyone. The greatest rival to King Jesus on the throne of your life, it's you. You are the greatest rival to King Jesus uh, as far as the throne of your heart. Because remember, the territory of the kingdom of God today is our hearts, it's our lives. Now again, don't misunderstand. The territory of this earth will be the territory of our king's kingdom. But for now, the territory of his kingdom is your heart and it's mine. So I end with, with this. I end in two ways. When, when Jesus was on trial, You remember the Jews stood outside, and this is what they said. The Jews said, um, when when, when Pilate was asking them about Jesus, they started chanting, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Remember that? So the Christians, it was exactly the opposite. It was exactly the opposite. I'm I'm going to end with a story, kind of like I've been doing lately, but I'm going to end with a story for you. And I'm going to begin reading it in just a second, but just setting the context for the story. So what happened in the Roman Empire was that they brought together people from all. I'm going to read this again, but let me just kind of tell it to you. They brought people together from all the nations of the world and they brought them under the Roman Empire. And they all had different gods and they had different faiths and they had they were just different cultures. And what could unify them? What could unify them? Well, they determined that the one thing that could unify them was for them to make everybody swear allegiance to Caesar as, as king and as, as lord, as God. And so that's all everybody had to do. They had to make a toast, if you would, to Caesar, and they would be okay. The Christians, believe it or not, they were the ones, some of the only ones, who would not do that. Let me read you a story. The great challenge of the Roman Empire was binding together the many cultures faced nations under the common banner. As their armies conquered lands stretching from Germany to North Africa, from Spain to Syria, this challenge became increasingly difficult. What could serve as a kind of bond to hold it all together? The obvious answer was the emperor. He could stand in as the living embodiment of the empire so that the loyalty to the emperor would be synonymous with loyalty to Rome. And how could such loyalty be displayed? By having every citizen make a sacrifice to him as if he were God. 
So Rome did not insist that everyone convert from their religion. They merely insisted that every religion add a small homage to the emperor, a small act of worship that would serve as a display of their loyalty to the, to the emperor or to the empire. Christians refused to do this. Their ultimate and exclusive loyalty to Jesus Christ precluded them from making such an offering. And it was this refusal that was the source of so much of their persecution. One of the leaders, and this is one of the leaders, I'm going to interrupt my reading to tell you, one of the leaders who followed after the first generation of Christians was a man by the name of Polycarp. And Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. And, uh, and he was eventually arrested because he would not do this. This is after his arrest. Polycarp led the church in Smyrna with wisdom and authority, having been appointed to leadership by men who had seen and heard the Lord. He was frequently called upon to settle disputes or correct false teaching. Even the other leaders of the early church valued his insight. When Polycarp visited Rome, the bishop there deferred to him regarding uh, when to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a sign of honor and respect. After he was arrested, Polycarp was put on a donkey and led back to the city. Upon arrival, his captors ushered him into a carriage of a man named Herod, the captain of the local troops. Herod tried to convince Polycarp to save himself. Why? What harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense? When Polycarp refused the very suggestion of renouncing Christ, the official grew threatening and forced him out of the carriage so roughly that he injured his leg. Without even turning, Polycarp marched on quickly as they escorted him to the stadium where a deafening roar rose from the throngs of spectators. As he entered, the, his Christian companions heard a voice from above saying, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. He was brought before the proconsul and urged to deny his faith and to bow before the emperor. Swear by the spirit of Caesar, repent and say away with the atheists. Turning with a grim look towards the crowd calling for his death, Polycarp gestured at them. Away with the atheists, he said dryly. Undeterred, the proconsul pressed him further to deny Christ. Polycarp declared, 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? We are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt what is evil. Once more, the proconsul urged Polycarp to swear by Caesar. This time, Polycarp replied, Since you pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness. I am a Christian, and if you wish to learn more about Christianity, I will be happy to make an appointment. Furious, the proconsul said, Don't you know that I have wild beasts waiting? I'll throw you to them unless you repent. Polycarp answered, Bring them on. Then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt what is evil. Next, the proconsul threatened to burn him alive. To this, Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire which burns for a little while and soon extinguish. You do not know the coming fire of judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Do what you wish. The proconsul sent his herald out into the arena to announce Polycarp had confessed to being a Christian. At this, the assembled crowd seethed with uncontrolled fury and called for Polycarp to be burned alive. Alive. Quickly they assembled a pyre, gathering wood from work workshops and public baths. Polycarp remained, or removed his clothes and tried to take off his shoes, though his advanced age made it difficult. His guards prepared to nail him to the stake, but he told them calmly, Leave me as I am, for the one who gives me strength to endure the fire will also give me strength to remain at the stake, unmoved, without being secured by nails." They bound his hands behind him. Polycarp offered a psalm of praise and thanksgiving to God. His captors ignited the wood. 
According to observers, as the flames grew, they did not consume Polycarp as expected. The fire formed a circle around him, but his body seemed not to burn. And since the fire did not have its intended effect Polycarp, of burning Polycarp's body, an ex executioner was ordered to stab him to death with a dagger. He was stabbed repeatedly, and the blood, his blood extinguished the flames. Observers that day were shocked by the contrast between Polycarp's martyrdom and the deaths of non-Christians that they had witnessed. They beheld the same faithful discipleship in Polycarp's death that had characterized his life, a humble acceptance of God's will, praise of God in the most extreme trial, and a joyful and wavering commitment to Christ even when faced with death. Polycarp was among the first recorded Christian martyrs. His steadfast obedience to Christ was a powerful testimony, an inspiration not only to the church he pastored so faithfully in Smyrna, but to Christians throughout the centuries. Now, I read you that story for this purpose. If Polycarp would not own any king but Jesus, even at the cost of his life, can we not own Jesus in life? as our king? Can we not, without apology, say Jesus is our king and never deny him and stand up for him and love like him? I invite you this morning, if you are not a part of the kingdom of God, to become a part. Let's bow our heads. So I'm going to close in prayer in just, uh, in just a moment. Before I do, I, I really, with your heads bowed and your hearts bowed before God, and I don't know, maybe the Spirit of God has uh, been inviting you and tugging at your heart to become a part of the kingdom of God. I want to reiterate, I want to encourage you to respond to His Spirit who's prompting your heart. Would you become a part of the kingdom of God? You say, Jimmy, I don't know how. It's so simple. Just by faith, you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and uh, you believe that God exists and you seek him. The Bible says without faith we can't please God, but the one who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So I really want to urge you to seek the Lord this morning, and I want to urge you to, to begin by seeking Jesus, the one who conquered death for us. So if you're here this morning and it's your desire to be a part of his kingdom, you should have got a bulletin when you came in. Put your name and address on it. Let me follow up and talk with you, okay? Drop it in the box on the back wall. Uh, out there in the foyer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, sending Jesus as God to be our king. And Jesus, we own you as our king, and we, we bow before you this morning. You are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You're our king, and uh, we want to follow you. We want to submit ourselves to you willingly, and we want to offer to you the territory of our heart and lives. Lord, you are reigning over us, and we long for the day, Lord, when you consummate your kingdom and you become king over all the territory of the earth and you bring to an end the world as we know it and you institute the new eternal kingdom. And we would say today, come, Lord Jesus, we long for your return. We pray this today, Lord, for those that you're calling. Lord, help them. Help them now trust in you. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Mm -hmm.